Good morning and welcome to the National Capital Bible Church here on Resurrection Sunday. And we certainly do proclaim that He is risen. And for those of you who know that the way the Passion Week uh, rolls out, that by this time on Sunday, Sunday morning, uh, the day after the Sabbath, which would have, which it would have been in Israel, our Lord would have accomplished His victorious uh, victory, victorious victory, dynamic victory over death and over Satan, and sealed the uh, sealed Satan's fate. So this is a marvelous day, and it's really a day that um, is designed for celebration. So I'm glad you're here to celebrate with us at the National Capital Bible Church. Jesus said to Mary in John 11:25, "I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live." And that is the message this morning, and it's the message that we will um, address as we go forward in our service. Right now you have a few seconds for spiritual preparation. Our spiritual preparation, of course, is confession of sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you have a few seconds for personal privacy, closing our eyes and bowing our heads, and then I'll open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that He is risen. We're thankful for the empty tomb. We're thankful for the consternation, the frustration, uh, the distress of those who arrived early Sunday morning to look at an empty tomb. And we're thankful, Father, that it is that empty tomb and the fact that You have risen that really establishes, which is really the foundation of what we believe. We pray this morning as we study about our Lord and Savior, our risen Savior, our living Savior, that we will truly have an appreciation for who He is and what He accomplished for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning... is from Matthew, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, our scripture reading, Matthew 28, Now, this is Resurrection Day, Easter morning, for some. And Matthew 28 is the perfect passage for us to read this morning. We're reading it because it may be the last time we see it this morning. Because we have another task at hand. But Matthew 28, 1 through 8 declares to us that He is risen. Wonderful words. But of course, on that morning, unexpected. Very, very unexpected. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, which would have been their last day of the week, now after the Sabbath, As the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, 
and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And those are Roman soldiers. They've probably seen a lot of action. Or if they hadn't, their training is uh, very rigorous. These are not faint men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified, perfect passive participle, crucified, and the results of that crucifixion, his work on the cross, have continuing results. It's passive because he received God, God the Father's action on the cross. So you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen. I wonder how many angels had their hand in the air to say, I'll go. I'll be the one that rolls the stone back. I want to be the one who makes the announcement. He is risen. He is risen. The Jesus whom you seek, He is risen. Because that was His Lord as well. We sometimes don't, don't think... These created angels, as we say, in the angelic conflict, this is just a remarkable battle and this is a remarkable event. And this angel who was selected... Very well may have been Gabriel. We don't know. Come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. I have finished my mission. I've completed the task that was given to me. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. That's just a great, great passage. And we could stay there and proclaim this and teach it. But as I said, we have other things we need to do this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that he has risen. And how wonderful and how remarkable and extraordinary for this angel to be given this responsibility to announce to the world that the creator of the world had overcome death and he was risen. Come see the empty tomb. What a remarkable message. What an astounding fact. And what are we to make of it? What is the world to make of it? We pray this morning, Father, that we will understand that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we were studying the emergent church. And we really were right in the middle of the theology of what they believe. And... For many of them, this Jesus who we celebrate this morning, His resurrection, takes on a limited significance. And much of the biblical truth that we find in the Word of God takes on limited significance. And while we are going to set aside some of that theology for next week, we are going to address our Lord and Savior this morning. Because on Resurrection Sunday, I think one of the things that we should ask is who was this man, Jesus? Who was this man, Jesus? Once we have come to that conclusion, we're going to look at the crucifixion. And what do the deniers say? What might some of those theologians 
who find themselves in this new emergent theology? What might some of them say? What's have, what have they said? And not all emergent theologians would say this. But we're also going to see the excuses, the stories, the theories that might have been said or are said today. And then, is the resurrection important? We have a, one marvelous passage. There are many, but we will look at one this morning, maybe two, time permitting. So, let me introduce our subject with by saying that the day and holiday, Resurrection Sunday, is traditionally known as Easter, and as I've said in the past, that's fine. Easter is a fine title for it. Not the best, I don't think. However, as I have said in the past, that calling today Easter is to obscure the true meaning of the day. For many believers, Easter means the day that Jesus rose from the grave. But it can also have other meanings and include other related and certainly unrelated events. To be specific and call it Resurrection Day leaves no confusion. No confusion at all. No possibility what the day means or why we as believers celebrate it. Again, in church history, Easter and Resurrection Day are used interchangeably. And so understanding that, we may call it Easter. And we do. And we should not deny the significance of that word. But I think that we can be more direct. We can clarify what we really mean when we talk about this day. The Gospels each record at least two chapters. Remarkable. Two chapters in each one of the Gospels for our Lord's trials, His crucifixion, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And if we were to include His the entire Passion Week, meaning going from Sunday to Saturday, or Sunday to Sunday, really, His triumphal entry and working our way through the week. And many of you have heard various things that occurred on those days. Two years ago, we studied that in depth. And it's a study that can go on and on and on to try to determine when certain things happened on certain days. It's a remarkable study. And we could add a few more of those events and we'd have more chapters. But generally, the message is delivered. On this day, concentrate on our Lord's execution on the cross and his victory over death by resurrection. And I think that that is how it should be. In doing so, we learn and appreciate much about the miscarriage of justice. We learn about the spiteful attitude of the Jewish leaders, the agony of the cross, his death, and of course, our Lord's victorious resurrection. We will address some of those characteristics. However, I think we often miss the truly inconceivable and incredible disparity between the majesty and the grandeur of who our Lord truly is and the vile, repugnant, despicable horror of the cross. The contrast could not be more stark. Truly. Could not be more stark. Yes, we know that the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, those of us who are believers, and I think truly who study the Word of God, we understand that the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, the only perfect person in all human history is the one who will go to the cross. But do we fully comprehend that this was God? Not just 
a perfect person. Perfect in word and deed. But he was God. I think we do ourselves a grave disservice by at times taking this person in a rather limited way. We don't mean to, but we do. If we didn't, I think we would live our lives much differently. Do we fully comprehend that this was God? That day and that week, we could say, he personally knew each and every one of the men who judged him. You say, well, he saw them. No. He knew them intimately. He's God. So he knew personally each and every one of the men who judged him. He knew in infinite detail all of their lives. Their failures, their weaknesses, their hypocrisy, and the future destination of their souls. He knew their thoughts, what they were going to say prior to saying it. Here is God going through a trial. And he knows everything that's going to happen. He was capable at any instant of stopping the entire episode. Could have stopped it. With a thought, he could have stopped it. Jesus could have simply thought. And the stones and the trees would have come to his rescue. He's the creator. The, instru the instruments used to torture him could have dissolved. Or the metal in the belts, the leatherware, the whips, or the nails could have become missiles to kill his tormentors. In the garden, he simply said in answer to the question... Are you the man that we've come to arrest? He said, I am. And he knocks an entire detachment of Roman soldiers who may have never in combat ever been knocked down. He knocks them on their backs without his approval. They could not have gotten up. They would have been unable to rise. They would have been unable to take another breath without his allowing it and really dictating it. Their hearts could have taken not one more beat. Why? Why? Does he not stop this? We'll see this in Hebrews 12 as one of our passages that we'll study today. But that's who this Jesus is. This person was and is the actual creator of the universe. As he was being abused, he was still holding the universe in place. A universe so vast that we do not even understand its expanse. No idea. We're discovering more and more every year. Stars and planets so numerous we cannot count them. No two alike. No two alike. But he has names for each of them. This is who this person was that morning who was being taken to the cross. 
far more than who we often think went to the cross. And so this morning, who was this man Jesus? Do we really have an appreciation for who he was and what he did for us? Is there any way we can put ourselves in a state of reality that understands the disparity between who he was and what he did for us? I don't think so. I honestly believe it's impossible. Let's look at Psalm 8. Let's turn to Psalm 8. Who is this God-man we call Jesus our Lord? Psalm 8 will be our first passage this morning. David and several other authors in writing psalms, these psalms, show remarkable insight. Psalm 8. And we could read much more here, but let's just read beginning in verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, great description. Of course, God didn't do it with his fingers, but that's the figurative language that is used here. The moon and the stars, which you have ordained, established, installed, appointed. And we, can, we are unable to conceive that because how do you do that? How do you create a universe? How do you hang the stars and the planets in place? What keeps them there? God does. That's who this is. He's established them. He's installed them. He's appointed them. What is man that you are mindful of him, that you even take notice of him on one planet in this universe? What is man that you even take notice of him, that you remember him? There has to be Many other things that have to be done on this small, insignificant planet, which is not insignificant, which is unique. Human beings and the son of man, human beings, I think is what is being related here, that you visit him, that you give mankind any attention at all. Of all your creation. For you have made him a little lower than angels. Angels. Another creation. Created beings. Higher than human beings. Used as messengers. By God. To administer. To the human race. And as we've seen. One of them. Given the honor. Of announcing. That he has risen. But you have made these human beings even lower than angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. Glory and honor. Why? Why mankind glory and honor? Well, God has given to mankind the glory of being God's representatives on earth. We are his representatives. And we have been made in his image. His likeness and image that makes us extraordinarily special. Verse 6. You have made him to have dominion, rule over the works of your hands, over what God has made. He's placed mankind in authority. This is very interesting. God made it, places mankind there. My representative, take charge of what I have created. You have put all things under his feet. So this is the God-man who came to live among mankind. He came to live among us 
to live with the creatures who are authorized to care for the works of God's hands. And I, I find that stunning in itself. Lord creates the universe. He creates this planet. He makes this planet special. Then he puts a creature on it with all the other creatures that were created in order to manage it, rule it, have dominion over it. And then he comes and lives amongst that creation, observing how they are accomplishing this task. Let's go to Psalm 19.1. Psalm 19.1. We'll just pick up one verse before we go to our next passage. Since the universe is his handiwork, and this is, I think, important. Again, we think, well, God made the heavens and the earth. When we talk about an artisan, someone who is skilled, there, there are various levels of skill. There's various levels of ability. And there are some who do a sufficient job. Some, we might even say, is, you know, well, it's mediocre, but it'll do. There are others who are highly skilled, and there's, we seek their work. Many would not have anyone work for them unless they were the, the top of their profession. Well, here is God as the Creator. What He created was originally perfect. There, there was no uh, weaknesses, no flaws. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have this type of an artisan, uh, someone who is a craftsman of this nature. And how do we know that it's just a remarkable creation? Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky displays His handiwork. And we often stand at night and gaze out into the night, into the heavens, the sky, and we're in awe. And we should be. It is the handiwork of God. And there's not one of us that could say, you know, I'd have tweaked it just a little over here. You know, I understand there's a black hole out there somewhere, you know. We should see the grandeur of our God who became the God-man, who walked among us. That's who this God is. Isaiah. Let me keep my PowerPoint going here. Isaiah 40. We don't have time to see all of these passages. I spent probably too much time enjoying myself with many of these passages, but we'll select a few. Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, and we're going to have to limit ourselves to verses 21 through 26, if we can. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 21. This is our Lord asking these questions. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth, mankind, do you not understand who this God is? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Well, it's actually worse than that. But at least that, that begins to give us an understanding. A man or mankind to insects, to bugs... I am almost a far-gone expert on grasshoppers. Having grown up on a farm in Iowa, uh, there were 
summers when we would be overrun with grasshoppers. And, of course, when you're young, you catch them and you do various things with them. You examine the differences in the grasshoppers, the big green ones, the small brown ones, the little black ones. And you've got some that can fly and some that can't fly and some that manage to be thrown into spiders' nests and various things of this sort. Uh, some grasshoppers are good for eating, some are not. But that's the difference here between uh, yourself, we'll say, and insects. But, it, of course, it's completely different than that. But that's the best we can do here, as Isaiah writes this. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. <clears throat> who stretches out the heaven, who, this God, who is sitting on the circle of the earth, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. In other words, to him, the universe is like, really, the confined area of a tent. God is not confined to the universe. In all of its vastness, in all of its expanse, it's like being in a small tent to God. It's his tent. It's inconceivable. And the universe's limits are unknown, but to him, it's very confining. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. And that's what he could have done. During this Passion Week, he could have resolved it with a thought. He brings the things that we do to naught. It, it's amazing to understand who this is. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Verse 24. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. When he will also blow on them and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Yes. Our Jesus, our Lord Jesus, could have just breathed. And all those around him wilted, been like stubble to be blown in the early morning breeze. That's who this was as he stands there amongst them and is judged. Verse 25, to whom then... Will you liken or will you compare me? I don't, I don't know. Or to whom shall I be equal or shall I resemble? Says the Holy One. And the answer is, there is no answer. There is no answer. There is no comparison. There is no resemblance. We can't find it. We can't conceive of it. There is no answer. We cannot liken him to anyone. He is equal to no one. No one in the same universe with him. We might say, well, not really in the same category. This pitcher, that pitcher, this uh, football player. Well, they're not in the same league. There's no one in the same universe with this guy. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, this, ex these, this expanse the heavenly lights found in the universe. Who is this? It's God. Who, God, brings out, causes to go out, Hiphel. He causes it to happen. It means to go out, but God causes them to go out. Without him, they wouldn't go out. There wouldn't be planetary rotations. Their host by number the stars are likened here, I think, to a huge army that the Lord leads out on parade. He calls them all by name. The Lord calls the roll. How many stars, how many planets are out there? Well, let's march them out. Let's call the roll. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. God doesn't lose track of any of them. 
doesn't lose track of any of them. And if we stay with the military analogy, not one of them is AWOL. Not one of them's in unauthorized absence. They're all there. God knows them. And why aren't they? Because he controls them. His power. And we could go on here. Let's drift over to verse 12 for just a minute. Who has measured? Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span. A span in that time was the distance between the two tips of the thumb and the small finger. And so I think what's being said here is that sometimes they would measure distances by, you know, fingertip to thumb, thumb to fingertip, fingertip to thumb, you know, or do this, whatever. Who's measured it? Can you measure it even that way, the vastness of it? No, forget it. And calculated, excuse me, and calculated, have you calculated or weighed the dust of the earth in a measure? Weighed the mountains in scales or in a balance. They would use a balance for the purchasing of food or other dry goods. And the hills in a balance or again on scales. In other words, the implied answer to this rhetorical question is that no one but the Lord can do this. No one. The Lord and no other. He created the world. He can do this. He's like a merchant weighing out silver or commodities on a scale. The Lord established the various components of the physical universe in precise proportion. He weighs them out. Who has directed, who has measured, who has estimated, who comprehends the spirit, the mind, the essence of the Lord? Or, as his counselor has taught him, who gives God instruction or advises him like a counselor or a teacher? Who does that? No. With whom did he take counsel? Whom does God go for counsel? And who instructed him? Who gives God discernment and taught him in the path of right of justice? In other words, who teaches God the correct way to do something? Who would do that? Does God learn by trial and error? Who taught him knowledge? That's the next question we have in our passage. Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? In other words, skill, design, with regard to the universe. Who taught him that? Verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket, insignificant. <clears throat> no matter how arrogant the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans... No, a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on a scale. They don't even register on God's scale. Look, he lifts up, he raises, he weighs the aisles as a very little thing. God weighs them as if they're just a speck of dust on the scale. So this is our God. This is the God who made atonement for us who was our substitute. Let's go to the New Testament very quickly. Colossians. Colossians 1. It's a passage that should be very familiar. Who is he? This is our God. Paul writing to the Colossians. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. Verse 15, he, we have a, a pronoun here. If we traced it back to the antecedent, we see it's the Son. This is the Son, he. <clears throat> he, God the Son, is the image of... He's the likeness. This, the Greek word here is icon. He's the essence of the invisible God, the Father. 
the firstborn. And we're not talking here about being born. We're talking about preeminence. He's the ruler, we might say. He's first in rank. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth. Visible, we might say humans, an invisible angelic creation, if we wanted to come to that. And I think that very well might be what's being discussed here. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or power, it doesn't make any difference. Who might have authority, who might be in power, they were all created by God. They received their authority from Him. All things were created through Him and for Him. And so the idea that we have here is in direct contradiction to the false teaching, later known as Gnosticism, who tried to come up with a way to figure out how mankind arose, how we were created, how did we come from the hand of God, possibly maybe through what they called eons, so that down this expanded creation one creating the other, one creating the other, until we finally get to someone by the name of Jesus, who is the height of these creations. All the theories of mankind about God are designed to minimize God. That's what they're designed to do. They're designed to minimize God and to minimize our Lord. Man cannot understand God and generally refuses to accept what Scripture says about Him. So the result is that our Creator becomes something not much more than the statute, the stature of maybe a very powerful man or a national leader. Someone who can essentially be ignored. And that's what generally happens within mankind is we just reduce Him to something that we can understand. And in doing so, what do we do? We really lose track of who this God is. So we now know, certainly did, but we now know we brought him, he's the creator. Well, what did this creator do? Philippians 2, very close here, just one book back to the rear march here. Philippians 2. Philippians 2. 5 through 8. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. This is the God that we've been studying, the Creator. What does He do? He humbles Himself. And, And we cannot, again, even begin to understand what the word humbling means when it comes to God. How in the world does God humble himself? How could We might ask, well, let's read. Verse 5. Let this mind, this attitude, the attitude that we receive from 3 and 4, which told us that we should esteem others more highly than ourselves. That's the kind of attitude that we at least need to To start this understanding, we have to have that attitude. Let this attitude, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who? Christ Jesus. Being in the form of God. So there's a correspondence here between God and Jesus, meaning that he was truly God. We have, we call it a correspondence in reality. Jesus and God. Jesus was God. There's correspondence here. Who, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This is my New King James translation. Literally, he did not regard equality. In other words, retaining this position to be held or grasped. He didn't hang on to his position as God. But he allowed himself to become a man. That's what it's saying here. So, 
He did not regard equality with God here, something to be retained, a position that had to be held or grasped. But he made himself of no reputation. And a better way to describe this, if we're looking at our Greek words here, kanao, the doctrine of kenosis here, is that he emptied himself. He removes something. He made of himself, he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. And of course, the discussions here on exactly how this occurred and what occurred is theologically endless, many discussions. But I believe that he simply, he is God. We can't change that. But he didn't allow himself to be seen as God. And he, of course, limited himself in what he did as a human. So, if he was God, he would have been blinding in his glory. A much greater glory in magnitude than what we saw in the angel who was sitting on the stone. Who, who appeared as lightning and his garments glowed. Pure white. Well, God in his appearance, would be uh, beyond that by many magnitudes. So he doesn't come in that fashion, but instead taking the form of a bondservant. Bondservant? What is a bondservant? Bondservant is someone who serves, not someone who is served, but they serve. Paul said, I'm a bondservant. We are bondservants. How can this God come as a bondservant? You'd think at a minimum he would at least demand that his creation serve him. No. Not so. But taking the form of a bondservant, coming to serve, and in so doing becomes a wonderful example for us. How should we act as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Someone who has been bought. Everything we own, everything we are, belongs to our Savior. How does a bondservant respond? Just go on your way? Live your life the way you'd like to live it? No. Every moment, every heartbeat, every breath belongs to the one who acted as your substitute on the cross, died in your place. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness, coming in the likeness of man. The likeness here that we see, the likeness of men, is the word for likeness here is not an exact, not an exact likeness. Why? Because while he looked human, and he was human, he was fully human, he didn't have a sin nature. So there's a difference. Not a full likeness. Not a, con a correspondence in reality here that we saw with God. He is God. But he's not quite like men. He didn't have a sin nature. And being found in appearance as a man... He had a fully human body. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so this is where we connect our Lord God with him taking on the form of a human and fulfilling a very extraordinary mission, a very extraordinary responsibility. Here is where, if we're honest with ourselves, that we lose comprehension of what our Lord does for us. How this can possibly happen. How this can occur. How can God become a man, fully human, to save this lowly race, this lowly creation? And he's going to subject himself to something even lower. Can we even begin to picture... Taking on the form of a what? A grasshopper. A bug. That, that's the imagery. That's the only imagery we have. 
would you take on the image of an insect? Speechless, you know. Taking on the form of grasshopper, a bug, or some extremely lower form and giving yourself to that life form, I think the answer is no. Wouldn't consider it. Not for a moment. Admittedly, God had created us in His likeness and image because He wanted to have a relationship with us. He wants a relationship. And yet, this creature can reject Him, can limit Him, can obscure His work, and, for the most part, ignore Him. This morning, even as I try to paint this picture, it's inadequate. There's no way that we can understand who this was that came to earth to go to the cross to die in our place. And I think that we must try not to obscure that, not to limit that. What did he come to do? We'll come back at the beginning of our next service and we will see Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. A remarkable passage, I think. Again, a passage that we probably have difficulty understanding and reaping all of the principles. But Hebrews 1 and 2 tells the story. Tells the story of what our Lord did and tells us what we should be doing. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your son. We're thankful for your plan that sent him to earth, that gave him the mission, the responsibility, this task to provide salvation for us because we could not do it. There was nothing we could do to save ourselves from ourselves. But he came, the creator of the universe, a universe so expanse, so large, so vast, that it's beyond our comprehension, even with all the ability we have today. So we're thankful for his humility, for the fact that he came as a bondservant, for the fact that you loved us so much to send him, and he loved us so much that he went to the cross. We are thankful on this resurrection day that he just didn't go to the cross and he didn't die paying for our sins, paying for that penalty. But he rose again. He is a living God. And if he loved us enough to go to the cross, then he loves us and wants to see us someday with him. And we long for that day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.